I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Louise Berman is a psychiatrist in Central Florida. Dr. Berman, thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us. You're welcome. Upwards of 4% have been reported to have some form of eating disorder. Let's begin with a simple and basic question. How dangerous is an eating disorder? It can be dangerous. Fortunately, not very many people die of eating disorders, although that's certainly possible with anorexia nervosa. But it can destroy people's lives. They can be so involved in their eating disorder so that that's all they think about. They think about what they will eat or what they won't eat. So it's not much time to think about much else or certainly not much time to live. So it can be very destructive in terms of a normal, healthy life. Is obesity, can that be considered as an eating disorder as well? Not always, because there are a lot of people who are obese because they are eating the way they did when they played football, but they're certainly not exercising that way. And although that can be a health problem, it's not really an eating disorder. There are people who overeat as a way of comforting themselves, as a way of dealing with psychological issues. And if that's a major way that they deal with their emotional problems, then that can be considered an eating disorder. So a lot of people who suffer from depressions or some other sort of anxiety disorder, again, the comforting food can at times be extended to us calling it an eating disorder. Yes, only if they do it a lot. I mean, it's pretty common for people if, they're having a miserable time to go for solace and ice cream sundaes and chocolate. And if that just happens, you know, once every few months, I mean, we don't call that an eating disorder because I think that's in the normal range. But if every night when they're feeling frustrated or upset, they eat large quantities of food, well, yes, that that is an eating disorder. I know that a lot of people throw around the terms bulimia and anorexia. Could you give us a definition or a little insight to what those terms actually mean? Yes, anorexia nervosa means nervous appetite. And as such, it's not a good name for the illness that it denotes because people with anorexia nervosa often have a very normal appetite, but they don't eat. Loss of appetite only comes very late in the disease so that they're eating less than they should to maintain even an underweight weight. They're 85% of their normal weight or less. And they also can lose weight by purging, maybe over-exercising or vomiting or laxatives and diuretics. So they could lose weight all sorts of ways, but usually it's with restriction or a combination. But also, they don't think they're underweight. A lot of people who are depressed lose weight as part of their depression, but they know they've lost weight. And they know that, you know, they might have got down to a weight that's too thin, but people with anorexia nervosa can be painfully thin. They can look like victims of concentration camps. And they'll say that they still want to get down to a lower weight or they're very frightened of gaining weight. If they should be 120 pounds and they're 80 pounds, they may say, well, they don't want to gain any weight because they don't want to get fat. Well, they're a long way away from getting fat. In women, their periods will have stopped for at least three months. And also, they could have significant health problems, weakness, tiredness, loss of potassium, for instance, can interfere with their ability to walk, talk, and it can cause heart problems too. Many of these people are first diagnosed, actually, if I'm reading the literature correctly, because of visits visits 
to emergency rooms and their general practitioners. Yes, and they don't come in saying, oh, I've lost weight and I need to do something about it. They come in and say, I can't walk across the parking lot without falling on my face. Or they come in with an irregular heartbeat and are found to be low in potassium because of using laxatives. So they don't really connect it with their lack of nutrition, you know, because they're eating vitamins, for instance, and not much else. And so when they're told, well, they need to gain weight, they often fight that. You know, they often deny they need to lose weight. And even if they can have some recognition that they need to weigh a lot more, it's still very frightening to them to gain weight. Do they get hungry? Yes, they do. Yes, they're as hungry as the rest of us would be if they're starving, which makes it so amazing that they're not eating. You know, very far into the illness when they're very weak and tired, they may actually lose their appetite then. But through most of the illness, yes, they have an appetite. Because it seems that eating is such a basic biological part of our existence to be able to go contrary to actually feeding oneself is is very significant. Yes, and that's why very few people actually have anorexia nervosa. Bulimia is more common because it's easier to do what bulimics do. They may starve for a few days, but then they binge and overeat, and then they may purge in different ways, but they don't maintain the starvation. They can only do it for you know a few hours, a few days. Are eating disorders related to particular social groups or cultural groups? Is there anything to connect that sort of background into being able to predict chance of possibly having a eating disorder? Well, it was originally associated, at least anorexia nervosa was, with white middle class people in industrialized societies. But the rest of the world is catching up. So in the United States, all cultural groups could have anorexia nervosa, maybe somewhat lower in the lower classes of society. But I think also it's less likely to be recognized there. You know, they're less likely to go to for treatment as any other illness. In countries where there's a lack of food, it's very hard to have a binge eating disorder because there's not enough to binge on. So bulimia is more unusual amongst third world countries because, you know, again, they can't afford the food. Or if they do binge occasionally when food's around, well, that's seen more as a normal thing to do. And also they're less likely to obsess in third world countries about gaining weight because, again, that can be necessary for survival. So across the industrialized nations, it's about the same percentage of people suffering from anorexia nervosa and bulimia. What type of pressures lead someone into having or developing an eating disorder? Well, as far as anorexia nervosa goes, there are good indications that it goes back hundreds of years. There are good descriptions in the medical literature of the 1800s of anorexia nervosa. And there are some cases described that look like anorexia nervosa, at least to our eyes, 1000 AD. So it's not just an illness of modern culture, although modern culture certainly can make it more prevalent, especially when we come to bulimia nervosa. However, pressures coming from peers, children in high school or even middle school and elementary school wanting to be thinner, they may want to make weight for gymnastics, wrestling, that can be a tremendous pressure on people may want to lose weight to get into a bikini for the summer. It may just start with wanting to lose a few pounds quite innocently 
But then with some people, it goes into a life of its own. They don't just stop at losing a few pounds. They keep on going and going and going. They just want to lose more and more weight. Or with the bulimia, it's hard to lose weight. So then they start doing unhealthy things such as purging. And then they are starving because they haven't eaten all day and they've purged after dinner, so they binge. Purging meaning that they go and they vomit. Vomit or use laxatives and diuretics. And, and some people over-exercise. You know, they'll spend five hours a day in the gym. So it can be a variety of things, but vomiting being the obvious quicker thing to do. And, and then they get into a cycle of, of binging and purging. Also, although most of us think of, of vomiting as being pretty miserable, you know, because we associate it when we might have had flu and felt horrible, but people who vomit on purpose often boost their endorphins, which is a chemical in the brain similar to heroin, heroin or morphine. And so it makes them feel high. And so there are some people with bulimia who are purging even small amounts not only to get rid of food and lose weight, but also because it makes them feel high. I don't want to overextend the notion of an addiction, but it's almost as if they're addicted to the feeling that comes from purging. Well, for those patients, yes, it is similar to an addiction to drugs. And like addiction to drugs, it's often not just one thing. Those particular patients tend to abuse drugs, alcohol. Abusing drugs and alcohol is relatively rare amongst people with anorexia nervosa, no worse than the rest of the population, certainly. But amongst patients with bulimia, there is a higher rate of abuse to drugs and alcohol. One of the, I guess, characteristics, and maybe I'm overextending this as well, but it seems to be a secretive disorder. People go and they hide it from people. How common really is that and and why? Why the secretiveness? with anorexia nervosa often don't want to be obvious. They're sometimes rather shy, compulsive people. And although they are often very proud that they've lost weight, they hide it. Now, they also know that their families and friends might be shocked to see how thin they are, but they tend to cover up their body. You know, they wear more clothes than most people. Some of it is because they feel cold, even in Florida, but they tend to cover up. They don't wear real revealing clothes most of the time. Patients with bulimia often feel very ashamed that they're not able to control their appetite. You know, they're not able to control what they're eating. And so they're certainly not going to tell anybody that they go and purge and then eat a half a gallon of ice cream. You know, that's considered embarrassing and shameful. So that it's usually done by themselves, people with eating disorders are less likely to eat with other people. You know, in, a mo- in our modern culture, people tend to eat alone more than they did, say, 50 years ago. But people with eating disorders often, even if they have a chance to eat with other family members, don't and will eat alone in private if they eat at all. And so even normal eating, even if they sit down to a, a normal snack or a normal meal, is more likely to be done in isolation. And certainly they don't want to tell people about the purging because they feel very guilty and embarrassed about that. If we look at this from a psychoanalytic point of view, it sounds like they have a very poor self-image. Often they do. And even people who initially had a reasonably good self-image, once they get into the eating disorder, it diminishes. And it's interesting that patients with anorexia nervosa, when they gain weight, 
once they get over the fear of, of gaining weight. Often their self-image isn't that bad. You know, they're, they're able to recognize how they feel and how they are quite well. Also, patients with anorexia nervosa have an, a tremendous amount of willpower. If, if they can starve themselves, imagine what else they can do. It's a good so, point. That's yeah. a very good point. And often they are very good students, even though they may be hardly able to get into the classroom, they're often getting A's. You know, they may go home and practically collapse, but they still get up and do their homework and hand it in on time. Is there any association of any significance between an eating disorder and other things such as a borderline personality disorder or a body dysmorphic disorder? Well, it's similar to a body dysmorphic disorder. I mean, obviously, if you're 80 pounds and think that you don't to gain weight, that's like a body dysmorphic disorder in, in reverse because people with body dysmorphic disorders may think that they have a huge nose when it's not really very big at all. So, or bulimic patients might see their, their body as, as being very lumpy and ugly when it's not, it's, you know, certainly in the normal range. So, so what characterizes it is the other things that go with an eating disorder. But it, it's related and there may be people in the family of people with bulimia, with obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, anxiety, maybe a few more with attention deficit disorder. There is an association there too. Would you consider an eating disorder a primary disorder or a manifestation of depression or something else? It's a primary disorder because often if you look back, the eating disorder came first, the depression came later. Okay. Now there are people that you know may be depressed later in life and then as they get depressed, go back into their eating disorder. But it is regarded as a primary disorder because if you look at the patients with eating disorder, they may not be depressed before they get into the eating disorder. What sort of treatments work? How does one undo an eating disorder, so to speak? Well, it's a big question. It's a big question. it's, it's, It's not easy. Anorexia nervosa is particularly difficult because there's no medicine that really helps. People who have regained weight, sometimes do a bit better if they're given antidepressants. But while they're miserably underweight, antidepressants don't do very much at all. And some people give them hormones like birth control pills so that they won't lose calcium from their bones because a young teenager who has anorexia nervosa can lose calcium for their bones that they never make up so they're more likely to get osteoporosis in later life. Well, giving them hormones doesn't help might make them look more normal, but it's not going to help the calcium in their bones. And also people with anorexia nervosa aren't very amenable to psychotherapy because their brains aren't working very well, even if they're doing fine in school. So with the more severe patients with anorexia nervosa, often they need to be hospitalized. Sometimes it's a matter of dire emergency if they have low potassium and irregular heartbeat, other electrolytes that are abnormal. And then often it's very hard for them to eat. Even if they know that they might die if they don't eat, it's very hard for them to achieve that. So that often hospitalization is necessary. Unfortunately, insurance doesn't pay for it for very long. Which is a whole other story, obviously. Yeah, which is another interview. But nonetheless, Um, very much a real issue because a lot of people have this and they're not getting the treatment that they need. Yes, and they're not getting the treatment they need you know, and it's sad because a young person who has anorexia nervosa, if they're treated promptly, if they're hospitalized until they've gained weight and kept it on, 
often they do very well. So the prognosis, the prognosis is not bad if the treatment is intensive enough and focused enough and early enough. Yes, and, and then they can do fine for the rest of their lives. But patients who are treated piecemeal, which is what often happens, they may improve a little, but then they lose again. And then often they can develop bulimia later in life or stay with the anorexia nervosa. You know, I've had patients in their 50s still have anorexia nervosa. And so it can become a very chronic and persistent problem. Is it possible for a parent to get some warning signs early on before this becomes an emergency? What should a parent do? Well, again, people are dieting all the time. So just because a teenager wants to lose five pounds, that's not cause for panic. But they should watch how the young person is losing weight, you know, whether they are cutting out high carbohydrate high-fat foods, but still eating three times a day versus eating lettuce leaves for three days, you know, because doing it that way is more likely to lead to problems, and it's not likely to be an effective way of losing weight. So I think encouraging good nutrition, also having family meals is a good idea because you're more likely to notice the problem if the person is eating with you than if everybody gets their food separately. Noticing large weight losses. Now, again, people often cover it up, so it's you know it's often very difficult to tell. But you need to get to know your child is really what. It... Yeah, you basically need to see them yes. occasionally, you know. And but it's amazing to me that the number of young people I'm not talking about college age who may be away at college and out of their parents' sight, where the parents don't notice at all. Often it's their peers that draw attention to it. I can remember. One young woman, her high school friends were the ones that actually took her to the family doctor because they were worried about her. You know, they could see there was a problem. So, yes, so being observant and aware, for college-age people, it's often very difficult because the parents aren't seeing them very often. And also, women can model healthy behavior. You know, if, if fat is considered the worst thing in the world, worse than lying and stealing, then this creates an attitude in a young person where weight is more important or appearance is more important than anything else. So I think modeling healthy behavior is certainly something a parent can do. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us. I think the message that people need to hear that if this is found and identified early enough, treatment can be effective and a life can be essentially saved in some cases or markedly improved in most cases. Louise Berman is a psychiatrist in Central Florida, and we do thank you very much for joining us this evening. I can't speak. Have a very good night. Thank you very much.